to move beyond sin, we first have to see it and name it. And so that's an important step in racial justice and racial justice work as well. We are not going to be able to just come together and have kumbaya moments and really expect for anything to get done. Yeah, we can have photo ops. But if we really want to rid ourselves from the sin of racism that hurts non-white people and white people alike, then we will have to repent and repair. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship is a network of people and churches working together to spread the hope of Christ. For more than 25 years, CBF has been driven by its mission to serve Christians and churches as they discover and fulfill their God-given mission. Join the fellowship at work in long-term global missions in more than 25 countries. Join them too as they strive to form healthy congregations and support the ministers that serve them. Put your faith to action. Visit cbf.net to get connected. In this week's episode, we're going to have a conversation with Hannah McMahon-King, co-executive director of the New Baptist Covenant, a movement that was started in 2008 by former U.S. President Jimmy Carter and Baptist leader Jimmy Allen. She'll talk a little bit about what the New Baptist Covenant is all about and what they're doing, but they're doing something that's exactly what we're trying to do in this podcast, and that is to bring Baptists together across those denominational, those racial, those ideological lines that are too often dividing us. I had a chance to sit down with Hannah and talk during the General Assembly of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship last month in Birmingham, Alabama. The New Baptist Covenant has a luncheon at that event each year. So we talk a little bit about some of the focus and some of the stories that they're trying to tell. But we also talk more broadly about this important work of bringing Baptists together across these racial lines and dealing honestly with our racial history. So here's my conversation with Hannah McMahon-King. All right. Well, Hannah, first of all, thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks so much for having me. It's wonderful to be with you. So you are the co-executive director of the New Baptist Covenant. For those who are not familiar, what is the New Baptist Covenant? So the New Baptist Covenant was convened by President Jimmy Carter in 2008, and it was really a dream. It was a dream that Baptists could come together to be a positive witness in our nation and in the world. You know, Baptists are are very divided, often divided by race, by geography, by theology, and sometimes divided just to be divided. And President Carter traveled all over the world doing peace and reconciliation work, sitting with kings and emperors and local tribe leaders and, you know, all sorts of people bringing peace and reconciliation, but was dismayed that when he would come back to his own Baptist family, there was still so much division. So New Baptist Covenant sprang out of a dream of his to find a way for Baptists to work together for the things that we agree on, for the gospel truth, that we can all come around and really do more together than we can separately. Yeah, and that celebration of New Baptist Covenant kind of launch event back in January to February of 2008 was was a phenomenal event 
15,000 Baptists from various denominations and racial backgrounds and ideologies. An amazing moment of a prophetic dream kind of came into, into being with both with President Carter and I know the other lead energetic person at the time, Jimmy Allen, who passed away earlier this year. It was it was a really a phenomenal event being there at that celebration. And you all have had some other gatherings since then. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about that, but but I also know that you've also kind of moved into a new iteration as well. And right. so you're focusing more on these covenants of action. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an important concept to talk about. Right. So in 2008, and I, I, the language that you're using is really how I think of it as well. In 2008, it was the birth of a dream. And that historic convention where 15,000 Baptists came together. And it, what's important there is not just the number, but the different types of Baptists who came to the table. Different theological perspectives, different racial backgrounds. You know, there are very few times in our Baptist history, specifically around race, where we have been able to come together in that way. And so it was a historic event. It was a Kairos moment, I think. And to me, I really think of that as the 2008 launch showed us what we could be if we were willing to work for it. We had the idea but we had to do the journey. We had to take the journey to really be able to get there and to really be able to support and sustain that kind of vision and that kind of ministry. So after the wonderful event, the leadership began talking about, okay, so how do we make this dream real? How do we make this dream live not just once a year or once every three years or however, you know, long when we have a big gathering and, But how do we make these live in local communities with local churches and with local pastors? Because that's in our Baptist polity. That really is where we believe that power should reside, decisions should be made, and the Holy Spirit works most powerfully between people in the real face-to-face time. And so that discussion led to the Covenant of Action program. And the Covenant of Action program is when two or more Baptist groups of different racial or ethnic backgrounds come together and form a covenant around Luke 4, 18 through 19, Jesus's first sermon. And from that, from that Electio Divina process, come to understand what it is that God is calling them to do specifically in their location and in their time. So, for example, some of our groups have come together and they've said, you know, the phrase in Jesus's first sermon that really stands out to me is to proclaim good news to the poor. Well, proclaiming good news to the poor may look different in New York City than it does in Birmingham, Alabama may look different in Oxford, Mississippi, than it does in L.A. And so the projects that our partners take on are all different. And based on the needs of the community and the talents and resources of the partners coming to the table. But we have these projects going on all over the nation. Currently, in in some form of the process, we are working with, I don't have the most accurate numbers right now, over 100 churches that we're working with and walking through this process And what we really find is that by foregrounding the justice work 
We come together in partnership around justice work. And in doing that, what it does is it helps us to build relationship. You're going to get to know someone in a different kind of way if you're swinging a hammer beside them than if you're sitting on a panel talking about racial justice. Now, having those important conversations about racial justice is incredibly important and is a part of what we do. But you're going to be able to have those conversations in a different way if you've built trust with people. And if you have a relationship there, you will be able to have a more authentic conversation, a more vulnerable conversation, more honest conversation if there's relationship and trust there. So we foreground the justice work so that people can build that trust to really go into the important conversations. We're here at the CBF Assembly and once we get done with this, you're going to be preparing for your luncheon. And the focus this year at the luncheon is what three of these pairs from this covenant of action. And for those that are listening to this and were not able to come to the luncheon, I wonder if you could give us a little highlight of, uh, of what these stories are, what's happening with these six churches. Yeah. So we have this year for the luncheon, what we really wanted to do is kind of show people what it looks like on the ground level. And so this is what it really looks like because it's, it's transformative. It is a conversion experience in developing the kind of interracial, multiracial relationships like this. It breaks you open in a new way that you see God. It really does. And it's transformational. The things that as a white person, I have been taught to fear. I have learned that that's false. I have found God in new ways and in new iterations that my limited understanding and my limited world did not make space for. And so I think that's what you will hear in all of the stories at the luncheon. But for those of you who aren't able to join us this year, I'll give you a little taste of some of the things that they have been up to. So our first our oldest covenant partnership that you will be hearing from is our covenant partnership in Dallas, Texas, between Wilshire Baptist Church and Friendship West Baptist Church. And those partners came together and said, you know, the phrase that really stands out to us in Luke 4, 18 through 19 is to bring good news to the poor. What does that look like now in Dallas, Texas? And what they began to look around and see was the problem of predatory lending. When they began their work, it was completely legal to charge up to 400% interest on small dollar loans. And so what you'd have is you would have people who would get caught in, in a cycle of debt and could not get out. So you need a quick, you know, $100 to pay for an electricity bill because you lost a shift and you're trying to make it up next week, but that bill is coming due. And then maybe not, maybe not able to make that next payment and interest and fees and it just snowballs to an ungodly situation. And so what they did is they came together to educate their congregations about the problem. And then they began to lobby their local and federal legislatures and to so the work on the system and the laws. But then what they did is they even went a step farther and they created a credit union so that there was an alternative to predatory lenders in southern Dallas. There weren't many banks in the southern part of Dallas, and so access was part of the issue. So they created a credit union to 
be able to provide services to to the folks of Southern Dallas. And so in their covenant, I think you see a real tangible way that churches can impact and, you know, shape the lives of their community and the well-being of their community and really bring life. So, and then we have our, our next partnership that developed in Macon, Georgia, is between First Baptist Church of Macon, Georgia, and First Baptist Church of Christ, Macon, Georgia. Nope, didn't slip. It's two First Baptists, and they are a block apart from each other, separated by a little patch of lawn. And the churches split apart in 1845, I believe, and really had not had much interaction with each other. They had one pulpit exchange in the 1970s, but other than that, really had not had much contact with each other. And you can imagine why. I mean, there's deep pain there in churches that were under the same roof, congregations that were under the same roof, but the racial injustice and oppression of the time did not make them a a caring congregation for each other. And so the churches split. But they have come together, again, to honestly look at their history, their family history, and to address the wounds of their past. You know, they, before they came together, though, in that little patch of lawn that I was telling you about, they would, they would individually have Easter egg hunts. So one, on, one would have an Easter egg hunt on Saturday and one Sunday. So the kids on Sunday would find the eggs that had been left from the previous <laughs> Easter egg hunt. But they have come together to, to take an honest look at their history, and it's been transformational for them. They have learned to see each other in a new way and to see their community and the needs of their community in a new way. And then finally, it is First Baptist Church of Washington, D.C. and 19th Street Baptist Church of Washington, D.C. They also share a common history. And uh, similar to the churches in Macon, were under one roof until they split apart around the time, I believe they were a little before the Civil War, but they split apart and this was, once again, deep wounds and pain there around the the mistreatment of the African-American congregants in that community. But they have come together to be a voice for justice in their community and to build the bonds of Christian sisterhood and brotherhood. This last Monday, Thursday, they shared in a foot washing ceremony that was incredibly moving. They have also been an active voice for justice in Washington, D.C., and come together as a unifying witness of that when the Unite the Right rally to the follow-up to the one in Charlottesville that turned deadly. They were trying to, on that anniversary, host another rally in D.C., and our partners decided that they wanted a different witness. So they organized their congregations to meet. They came to the foot of the Martin Luther King Memorial in Washington, D.C., and hosted a prayer walk for D.C. and those visiting, and then served communion. And it's at the communion table where they wanted their witness to be, a shared witness of coming together at the communion table and, and sharing that love and showing witness for the hate that we're hearing today does not have the last word. I remember the news reports are such a powerful 
moment of communion there at the MLK Memorial, this Baptist prophet, and such a, a redemptive part of the story, the, the shared history, the split, and then now to come together very publicly for communion, I think is such a, an exciting moment. And as you noted, two of these covenant partners, and this is a history that's shared throughout the, the South and, and Midwest, started at one, one congregation with the black members being often enslaved by the white members and then either in the years before, during, or right after the Civil War have split and, and have had little to do with each other. And so it seems to be something, I think, really particularly symbolic and important in those moments. Not only are these covenant partners crossing these racial lines and they're crossing denominational lines because these churches are in different Baptist denominations, but they're also in some ways going back to that history that they haven't really, at least in the white churches, we haven't been that honest about. And recognizing that there was an injustice that this very church and this church's founders had been a part of. I think that there's something really important uh, and really prophetic in that value of coming, those specific congregations coming together to covenant together. A lot of times white churches don't know that history. And, you know, there, there's willful ignorance involved in that. And, there's also just that those aren't the stories that have been passed down. And, and so discovering that is, is important. You know, I went to, I am a Baptist minister's kid. And so I was always at churches and all the youth retreats and things like that. And I can't tell you how many times I was at a youth retreat where there would be, you know, testimonies where someone would get up and what do you do for the path of salvation? You repent. That's the first step. And so at all of these youth events where people would get up and repent of all kinds of sex, drugs, and rock and roll things that would make my little, you know, Baptist heart blush. (laughs) And that was okay because we know that that's the path of redemption and that's the path of salvation. To move beyond sin, we first have to see it and name it. And so that's an important step in racial justice and racial justice work as well. We are not going to be able to just come together and have kumbaya moments and really expect for anything to get done. Yeah, we can have photo ops. But if we really want to rid ourselves from the sin of racism that hurts non-white people and white people alike, then we will have to repent and repair. You, you started to talk a little bit about, about your background, and that was something I wanted to ask, because we, we've talked a lot about the New Baptist Covenant, but also of your journey then, of how you came to, to be working with the New Baptist Covenant and, and caring about that. So you grew up a pastor's kid, and then you felt a call to ministry yourself. Yeah, so I, I mean, I don't know, to tell you the truth, <laughs> Jesus, I mean, just one foot in front of the other and figuring it out along the way. When I mean, you felt called, this isn't where you saw yourself, right? It's, it's been I a, had no <laughs> idea. What, well, no, and I mean, this kind of thing did not exist. Yep. So it's not something I could have conceived of. I, I was raised in the Baptist church. My dad is, to this day, a pastor. And as a woman in thinking through that, I wasn't sure what that path would be like and knew from an early age, though, that that was something that was stirring in me. But it was also the time when resolutions were being made about women in ministry and the capability of women to be ministers at a formative time when I was trying to think through that myself and grappling with it and 
As a young person and, and thinking through vocation uh, and feeling stirrings of ministry, I remember, you know, seeing my dad preach every Sunday. And that was the image of a preacher for me. And my parents were wonderful and, you know, always made me believe that I could do whatever I felt called to do. But there weren't many women who I could see what it would look like. So I remember, you know, seeing my dad every Sunday in church up behind the pulpit in his suit. And I have this vivid memory of me at eight watching him preach and thinking, you know, imagining myself in his suit, wearing his suit behind the pulpit and just thinking that just that looks weird. That wouldn't work. I didn't see I I hadn't seen what it was like for a woman to be in ministry. And my eight-year-old mind was trying to figure that out. You know, to me, representation is so important. That's one thing that I think I've learned from that. But continue to grapple with what my ministry would be and what that means for me. And throughout the years, have just kind of put one foot in front of the other. And I remember hearing about the stirrings of New Baptist Covenant and, you know, this idea that maybe Baptists were going to come together in this way. And so sent an email to Dr. Allen and said, hey, if I can help, let me know. And so I was his first intern. That's how I got started in New Baptist Covenant. I came to help with that first 2008 event and have just found life and meaning here and have continued to, as we've continued to dip deeper into this mission and to try to find God's will for us. Well, in addition to your undergraduate, your first master's work on the religion side, you also went and did a, a master's in history. You have done your homework more than <laughs> I am a journalist. <laughs> and I also know how to use Google, I guess. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess I have. Yeah. Actually, it's on your bio on your website. Oh, I didn't have yeah, to work that hard. That. Oh. Your thesis was looking at religion and Jim Crow South, particularly how Christianity had both supported as well as sometimes challenged the lynching culture in the South. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, about that. What did you find yeah. uh, in a nutshell and, and how that's relevant to all, the, all that we've been talking about? Well, my imagination was really sparked by James Cone, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, which I would recommend to anyone. In that book, Cone walks through the lynching culture in our nation and, and what he shows is the way that Christianity supported and subverted it. And even the theology of the cross was central to the lynching culture of the South. So there is, there's even a correlation between the number of churches in a county and the number of lynchings that happen in a county. And so often what we would find is a white theology and a white Christology that borrowing from an abusive theology of the cross said that in a society when there's a contaminant, what happens? How do you purify a society? You need a bloodletting. Just as Jesus died on the cross to save us for our sins, this act is purifying for, the blood is purifying for 
our community. On the other hand, you would have the African-American communities who were suffering under the oppression of lynching looking to the cross as well and saying just as Jesus came into an unjust society and died at the hands of the unjust and oppression, so do we hear and Jesus stands with us. Jesus knows this struggle and is here with us. And that to this day still captures me. The way that the Bible can be used as a shield and a weapon and the way that so much of the white Christianity in which I was raised in is tainted by that legacy and is, is held back by that. We have refused to heal. And so to me, the core of trying to figure out does the church matter, is the church relevant, is looking at these very deep wounds that we have left to fester if the church is going to be relevant, if the church is going to matter today, then we have to be able to address those wounds. So actually, yesterday, we were able, my, my colleagues and I, and my new co-executive director, Dr. Aid Sand Wright-Riggins. Check out episode 69. That's right. That's right. <laughs> we went down to the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, which is a, a memorial that brings honor and dignity to the victims of our lynching culture. And it is a powerful, it's a powerful place that I would encourage anyone who can to, to make a pilgrimage there because it is not a tourist destination. It is a pilgrimage. And what you see there is just the capacity that humans have. I had a professor who made us begin every class with, I am human, nothing human can be alien from me. All the cruelty of humanity and the brutality. I, I can have access to that. Yeah, that's, that's possible for me. And also the bravery and the strength and the vision. That's something that I can have access to as well. And I think that is 100% what you see at the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. Um, you see the dignity of those who were victimized by the lynching culture. And there is a, a prayer at the end that just says the rocks will cry out. And I think that that's, that's really what you see there, that the history that we have failed to recognize, it's with us and the ghosts remain with us. When I was doing my graduate work on the lynching culture, I worked with a, a wonderful scholar, Dr. Elizabeth Payne, who broke some ground and we were looking at LQ Ivy. LQ Ivy was a 17-year-old young African-American man who was lynched in 1920 in Etta, Mississippi. And the community there does not talk about that act. In fact, if you go to the site, they are suspicious of you and don't like know that you're an out-of-towner coming in. What are you doing there? There's a palpable, there's a palpable fear there. And so the residents do not talk about the historical event, but there are ghost stories. And so what they will talk about, LQ's community and his family say so LQ was accused of the rape of a white woman. It was not possible. did not happen. And we know that now. But at the time, that's what he was accused of. And he was brutally tortured and burned alive. His community tells a story, though, that his heart was too pure 
to burn. So though his body was consumed by the flames, his heart was too pure, and that was that's what was left after the lynching, and so they buried his heart. The white community also, though, tells ghost stories. They tell stories of the lynch mob, and there's a way that well, they're just fascinating. They talk about how, so for example, the woman who struck the first match to light LQ Ivy on fire, years later she got wrapped up in an electric blanket. It caught fire and she died. They talk about the leader of the lynch mob who was a drunk and coming back from a bender one night and fell in a shallow ditch no more than two feet but could not get out that shallow ditch and died in his own sick drowned in his own sick. And there's something going on in those stories. There is a sense that you know that there's an injustice and kind of retroactively trying to address an injustice. But you're just getting the cert, you know, you're not you're not getting to the core. We have to exercise these ghosts or they will haunt us. And I believe in the church's power to do that. I believe that The church has the power and the path to redeem society, to redeem us from the greatest evils that we've seen through the power of God and the work of Jesus Christ. Well, and that's what it seems like the New Baptist Covenant is all about. It's trying to help us deal honestly with these stories that we haven't dealt with, these these, these ghosts that are still haunting us. So thank you so much for your work, for all that you're doing, and for joining us here on the program. And I know you need to head to lunch, and I will be at the lunch in, in a little bit. Oh, good. Uh, so good, I'm looking good, forward good. to it and hearing Great. more about some of these stories. But thank you for, for all that you are doing and for all that New Baptist Covenant is doing. Thank you so much. Appreciate you, Brian. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective. You can learn more about the New Baptist Covenant at newbaptistcovenant.org. And as always, you can find us at wardenway.org. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you've enjoyed today's program, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook. Head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review to help more people to find the show. You can find easy-to-share links at podcast.wordandway.org. If you'd like to give to support this program, we greatly appreciate it. All you have to do is at wordandway.org, hit the donate button, and whatever you give there will help the production of this podcast as well as our website and our monthly magazine. And if you have any comments or feedback about the program, please send them to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening.